University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verse 21. We are nearly one month into this season that we call Lent. Now, this is a curious season for the church. For one, I had a former church member in North Carolina ask me why we talked about Lent, noting that it seems weird the church named something after that thing that gets caught in our dryers and belly buttons. Yes, this person was confusing Lent for Lent. It's amazing how a vowel can change a word in its meaning. But while we're talking about Lent, can I share a few fun facts? Somebody's still turning to the Gospel of Mark, so humor me for just a second. Fun fact, did you know that belly button Lent is accumulation of uh, clothing fibers, hair, and dead skin? Yum. And it tends to happen with guys because God created us to have a forest on our chest and bellies. Or as I tell my daughters, the more coffee they drink, the more hair they'll have on their chest. Here's another fun fact about Lent. There's a Dr. Carl Kruninsky, who is a professor at the University of Sydney, that won a Nobel Prize in 2002 for his research into belly button Lent. Okay, back to the season of Lent that we're talking about. For many of us who grew up Baptist, this concept of Lent seems so very Catholic, so a couple things to that. Number one, we need to remember that the Catholic Church was the church for the first 1,600 years of our existence until this thing called the Protestant Reformation. The second thing is, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's great intentionality behind the season of Lent. It comes from a Greek and Latin word that means spring forth or season of spring. It's intended to be a 40-day period in which we reflect on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, to the cross, to death and resurrection. Lent is an invitation into reflection, fasting, of repentance, and turning to the life and ministry of Jesus. Last week, we focused on Jesus' love that heals our brokenness. This week, we're going to take this a step further in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by a boat to the other side of the lake... Stop right there. Is that going to be one of these annoying sermons? Yes, it's going to be. We're going to get a few words into it. Context matters. Where is Jesus coming from? When we simply find verses of Scripture that make us feel good without understanding the context of where it's coming from, we are cheating the biblical meaning to its original purpose and audience. We are stupefying our own souls into the deeper meaning of God's living word within our lives, and we are molesting the recipients of self-righteous biblical quotes upon other people simply because we find verses of Scripture that sound good or justify an argument we're trying to make. And so context, 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 context matters. So where is Jesus coming from? Well, earlier in the chapter, Jesus had voyaged across the Sea of Galilee, and if you remember, a great storm happened. The disciples are scared to death and cry out to Jesus who's sleeping in the bow of the boat. He gets up, calms the storm with a simple flick of his wrist, and then doubts the disciples' faith. 
He gets to the other side, and this is what happens. He encounters a man who's possessed by demons. Jesus casts the demons out of the man into a group of pigs who then run off a cliff. That farmer was up a creek. All of his money is gone. He restores the man. He commissions the man to go back into his town and to tell people about the power of God's love and strength. They get back in the boat and then cross back to the other side. Jesus did all that for one man. Stop and think about what that tells us about the profound love and generosity of God. That Jesus is willing to put his life and the life of the disciples at risk to serve one person. One person. So we turn back to our text. Mark chapter 5 verse 21. It says, when, when Jesus had again crossed over by the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him and while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and went with him and saw Jesus. He fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd is nothing new to Jesus. By this point in Mark's dead sprint gospel, Jesus has a reputation that is spreading so that when Jesus goes into a town, people want to come, they want to be healed, they want to touch, they want to see him, they want to hear from him. But this situation is a little different because Jesus comes across a man who is a synagogue ruler. Essentially, a synagogue in Jesus' day would have been like a local church where people would go, they would pray, they would learn, they would worship. And so a synagogue leader was much like a pastor. He would have loved for the people. He would have had a high prominence among his community. And yet this very religious man finds himself in a desperate place. His daughter is dying, and he believes that Jesus can make a difference. The girl is 12 years old. His heart is broken, so he goes to Christ. When you think of different people, there are certain things that Come associated with them. For example, when you hear the name John F. Kennedy, some of us think about his speech, ask not what your country can do for you, but we also think of his assassination. When you think of Rosa Parks, what comes to mind? A woman who stood against the social constructs, being willing to be arrested to not move to the back of the bus. When you hear the name Nick Saban, you probably think of the thing you hate most in this world, and then multiply it times a gazillion. I wonder how many zeros are with a gazillion, though. When you think of Mother Teresa, you think of a person of service and humility. When you think of Bill Shakespeare, you probably think of Romeo and Juliet, Steven Spielberg, Robert Plant. Don't break my heart and tell me you don't know who Robert Plant is. Your stories, the things you do, and the words we say shape what we are known for. Or as the great headmaster of Hogwarts put it, it's not your abilities that show what you truly are. It is your choices. And so in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has gained this reputation as a miracle worker, as a healer. Mark is a fraction of the size of the rest of the Gospels. Luke stands at a whopping 19,482 words compared to Mark's 11,304 words. Yes, there will be a quiz afterwards. Yet Mark features some of these amazing miracles that are not found in any other of the Gospels. And so Jesus is standing apart as this great healer and miracle worker. And this is something that he's doing for free. He's going from town to town, but he's not like the other miracles and healers of his day because there were other miracle people and healers of Jesus' day. He was doing it in the name of God. 
So why does Mark want to stand Jesus out of this moment? We're seeing that Jesus has this healing and servant nature to who he is. And the story picks up here in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around to the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see these people crowding against us? His disciples answered, and yet you can say, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. She said to her, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in in peace and be freed from your suffering. Mark wants to make this woman's identity clear. For one, she is a woman. Already he's categorized her in a place that in first century Palestine women were not held in high regard. But she's also a woman who's sick. Socially, she would have been unacceptable for other people. Whatever money she had, she spent it all for medical care and it left her in no better of a place. And not only is she sick, but her sickness is causing her social embarrassment and religious impurity. Can you imagine the embarrassment of this condition? Anyone who would have known about her, 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 her illness would have shunned her. They certainly would have not socially mingled with her because to touch a bleeding person in this day would have made you unclean, unfit to be around other people, especially in the synagogue. And for 12 years, she has suffered. That's the same age as Jairus' daughter. She's been suffering with this condition. Can you connect with this woman? I wonder if we recognize and embrace the things that cause sickness and brokenness in our lives. Though we might not use this terminology. Consider the conflict, the the fracturing, the disappointments, the setback, the, the bad choices, the failures in your life. Consider the various relationships and work and finance and family and dreams. All of these things can experience brokenness and sickness. Oftentimes, these things are obvious, manifesting themselves in relationships, in our lifestyle. But more than that, often these things simply manifest themselves in ways we don't recognize, that we can't put our finger on. These things are manifested in our heart, in our mind, in our worldview, how we see life, how we see people, our own soul. When we made bad choices, when other people have made choices that affect our lives, when we bend our lives around unhealthy mindsets, we struggle emotionally and cognitively, and these things inevitably chip away, leading to this great brokenness and sickness in our life. This woman recognized that she needed Jesus. She needed God to make a radical change in her life. She needed a miracle. And I wonder if, what will it take for us to see our need for Jesus? What will it take for us to embrace the radical difference that God wants to make in our life? And if we can recognize and embrace it, do we have the tiniest bit of faith to believe and step forward that Christ can make a difference in our lives? Call me old school, 
But I find Steve Martin's humor to be my, one of my favorite of all comedians. Uh, give me the jerk and the three amigos, planes, trains, and automobiles, and dirty, rotten scoundrels over any of the comedy movies that have come out in the last couple of years. He is in my top five of people that I would adore to meet someday. However, for all of Steve Martin's greatness, uh, this textbook introvert is uh, not keen into having um, interaction with people in public. In fact, Steve Martin dislikes signing autographs so much that he produces a card that he hands out to adoring fans. I think we've got a copy of it up here. And the card reads this, This certifies that you have had a personal encounter with me and that you found me warm, polite, intelligent, and funny. Signed, Steve Martin. In my opinion, this fits into the vein of his humor, but for some people it could be viewed as impersonal and cold and distant. You see, Jesus is having the opposite experience with this woman. He's surrounded by hundreds of people. They're pressing against him. They're shoving up against him, yet Jesus can tell that something has happened. This tells us something significant about Jesus. This woman touches him. She experienced the dissolving of her condition. Jesus stops everything because he knows that something has happened. The disciples think he's foolish for asking who could touch him. And one of the disciples pipes up. It's Peter in the Gospel of Luke that says, Jesus, people are pushing up against us. How can you ask who has touched me? I like to translate it this way. Come on, are you serious? Who touched me? James and John have been all over my personal space, and I'm pretty sure this creepy-looking farmer behind me has been fondling my rear end for the last few minutes. But who has touched you, Jesus? Jesus knows that something has happened. This tells us something significant about Jesus, that Jesus is not a Messiah that's looking for celebrity. He's not a, a Messiah seeking fame and fortune and power. This tells us that Jesus is a servant Messiah. One who cares about each person that he encounters. He wants to touch the life of this woman who has touched him. This matters enough that Jesus looks at this woman and says that your faith has healed you. Go in peace. The text wraps up here in verse 35. It says, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, do not be afraid, just believe. Oh Lord, we forgot about Jairus (laughs) and his daughter. We got so wrapped up in what's happening with this woman that we forgot about this little girl. I know that Mark can't exactly tell us about all the details of every person that he encountered, but I think this break in the action is so important. This woman was important to Jesus. But imagine for this, this, this father that this experience with Jesus pausing must have begun to pull at his soul. And yet when he hears the news that his daughter has died, Jesus turns to him and says, don't worry, just believe. I wonder for many of us if we have this same experience as Jairus. That we feel that, that God is not moving that God is not acting. We're just waiting for God to do something. It's all too easy to see that God is not acting in our immediate difficult circumstances, leading us to believe that it is too late, that there's nothing that God can do now. When we consider our job, our marriage, our health, our relationships, our finances, the greater narrative of society and the world, it's all too easy to find ourselves in a hopeless place. 
There is no way out of this pit because God is too late. It's all too easy in our culture that we get wrapped up in the bad news. We focus on the negative and the cynical and the critical. And yet, if we can just believe in our conscience that something is going to happen. And Jesus tells him, ignore the bad news. Just believe. What happens next in the narrative is that they show up to the house. There's mourners outside of the house. It's most likely family and friends. Jesus looks at the crowd and he says, stop wailing. She's only sleeping. And they tell us that they begin to laugh at this fool for believing that she's only sleeping. But Jesus goes inside and says this in verse 41. He took the child and said to her, Talitha ka'um, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. And at this, they were completely astonished. This is one of the most beautiful stories in all of the Gospels. There's nothing more telling of the nature and character of Jesus to encounter this woman to resurrect this little girl. As a father, I am overwhelmed at the thought of this man losing his daughter only to receive her back. As a human, I am overcome by the love and power of Jesus that looks at a woman like this and looks at a little girl like this and to see that they matter to God. Jesus is not just some fancy healer doing cheap parlor tricks to gain a following. Jesus is a miraculous Messiah who makes broken things and makes them whole, who takes dead things and makes them alive. Let's not miss this in our personal lives. May we come to see that Jesus is a miracular, miraculous Messiah within our lives. Because Jesus has the authority to transform lives. Jesus has the authority to transform the life of this woman who's been suffering for 12 years. Jesus has the authority to transform the life of a girl who literally just died. Jesus has the authority to transform our lives. Do we believe this? Do we accept this? Do we believe that Jesus can transform our world and our community? You see, this story teaches us something very powerful about God's love. This is good news. This is the gospel. That God and all of God's power and might chose to come to live among us. That through grace restores us, that through sacrifice of death and resurrection empowers us into something new. This story is an invitation to be served and to be healed by God. Consider the brokenness and sickness and suffering we are experiencing in our lives and in our community. This is an invitation and reminder that Jesus serves and heals us. Yes, you and whatever circumstances you are facing, will you believe that today? The other challenge of this text is to see that the Gospels are not just written to transform our lives, to see the invitation of Jesus, but it's also an invitation for us to view the life of Jesus and to follow in his footsteps. So this story teaches us that we are not only the recipients of service and healing of God, but we are called to be servants and healers each day. 
we would be foolish if we see that the Jesus presented in the Gospels is not calling us to live the very same life that he modeled for us. Jesus teaches us that the greatest in the kingdom of God will be a servant. This story slaps us in the face of the fact that God became flesh, walked among us, chose to serve people like this outcast woman and like this dead girl. If God created all things and takes time to heal and to serve people, what does that mean for our lives? So suddenly the excuses that we come up with of meetings and practices and vacation and life and priority don't seem to add up to this overwhelming call from Jesus to serve and to heal others. So let us ask ourselves, do we even see this woman? Do we see her kind around us? Is the busyness and priorities and agendas we have created really add up to all that great importance compared to the vitality of us going out and serving this world? Are we like the crowd that is pushing this woman away and holding Jesus up from getting to Jairus' daughter so that we can go to God for what we need, what we want, what's best for us? Are we the crowd getting in the way of Jesus? The bleeding woman is taking shape and form of all people we see every day. As we go to work, as we go to the grocery store, as we go to the gym and out to eat and for coffee and in our neighborhood, it's not always obvious. It's not easily spotted, but these are people within our lives. It's all too easiness and the busyness of who we are and what we have to do to see the opportunities around us to be Christ to other people. Jesus is calling us to be Jairus. Jesus is calling us to bring people to him. Jesus was not a majestic and high and mighty Messiah. Jesus chose to be a servant, a miraculous Messiah who changed the lives of each person that he encountered. Are we willing to walk in the footsteps of Jesus? It is not our abilities that show who we truly are. It is our choices.